Hi, this is Tiffany Bovo. Welcome to this edition of the What's Next podcast, where I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming a friend for the first time. I've been trying to get him for some time, so I couldn't be more thrilled that he finally said yes. So David Duncan is a managing director at InnoSight, where he works with leaders to create customer-centric teams, strategies, and organizations. He is the co-author of two previous books, including the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Competing Against Luck, The Story of Innovation and Customer Choice, written with the legendary Harvard Business School professor Clayton Christensen. A leading authority on the theory and application of jobs to be done, Duncan has extensive experience conducting market investigations around the world. And he has a new book coming out, The Secret Lives of Customers, which will be out May 4th. Prior to InnoSight, he worked as a consultant at McKinsey and earned a PhD in physics from Harvard. He lives with his family in East Greenwich, Rhode Island. Welcome, David, to the show. Thanks so much, Tiffany. I'm really happy to be here today. Very excited about this. And thanks for having me. Me too, me too. But you know the drill. We got to start out with some fun stuff. So bullish or bearish. Bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against it. Are you ready? I think I'm ready. Yeah. All right. The first one. <laughs> Drive-in movie theaters, bullish or bearish? Oh, definitely bullish, uh, given the current realities we live in. But uh, yeah. I'd say bullish ongoing, but that's another story. All right. Yep. <laughs> Next one, 3D printed homes, bullish or bearish? I am bullish on that. Uh, I think uh, we're just seeing the, the potential that 3D printers have, and uh, I think uh, they're popping up everywhere. I think it can also solve a whole lot for uh, low you know, housing for those in need. So I, I think there's so much opportunity there. All right, the third one, underwater hotels. Oh, I'm hugely bullish on underwater hotels. I've, I've never thought about that as a possibility, but now that you have raised it, I am very bullish. I would love to stay in an underwater hotel. I think it sounds fun, right? So, all right. So I got three bullish. Excellent. I must have given too many softballs. I'm going to have to, you know, I always like try to get a balance, but when I get all bullish yeah. or all bearish, I feel like I wasn't tough enough. Anyway, yeah. well, thanks Those for were playing easy. along. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So I, I'm, if you don't mind, I'm going to dig into, I know this was your last book, um, Competing Against Luck, but it, it really was one of my favorite reads uh, when it came out. Uh, not only because I love the work that Clayton Christian has done historically, but also because it really sort of pulled forward kind of this jobs to be done, innovators dilemma sort of conversation into today. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to get your perspective because I talk a lot about jobs to be done and sometimes people have different understandings of what that means. And so maybe we could just start there and then dig a little bit further into uh, the other stories of innovation. So why don't we start with kind of that beginning point of uh, jobs to be done and what that means. Yeah, so uh, this idea of jobs to be done has been around for at least 20 years, uh, you know, and, and it was a central idea that Clay talked about, I think, for most of his, his academic career. Uh, and then there are other you know, people out there who talk about it, who have developed methodologies around it, who have created you know, businesses uh, consulting on jobs to be done. And there's a diversity of, I'd say, perspectives about what exactly it is and how you do it. Um, so, you know, I can share the one that we developed in Competing Against Luck, and it's one I build on uh, and evolve a, a little bit in my new book. Um, but uh, I guess put most directly, a, a job to be done 
is a problem that someone has or a goal they want to achieve in a particular context or circumstance, right? The way we defined it in competing against luck is we said it's the progress someone's trying to achieve in a given circumstance. And um, I can remember vividly when we were sitting around in a conference room, uh, Clay, and there were two other authors on that, Karen Dillon and Taddy Hall, uh, uh, talking about what should our precise definition of a job to be done be, right? Uh, what, what should it be? And we, we, we hit on this idea of progress in a particular circumstance. And the reason we use the word progress is because it encompasses both, uh, you know, a problem that you might want to solve or a goal that you want to achieve, right? Um, and it, it kind of captures both of those ideas. In either case, um, it's the job or the progress you want to make that gives you a motivation to do something, right? To look for a solution, to pull a solution into your life, to expend all the energy that's required to do that, as opposed to the default, which is just to do nothing and continue living on as you are before. Uh, so that's how we define a job. And um, uh, I'm happy to talk about why that's a useful idea uh, and uh, why it's such a powerful idea, if that's helpful. Oh, absolutely. Keep going. This is good stuff. Yeah. So, so I think that, um, you know, and this, this is something that Clay and others, you know, hit on a long time ago, but um, companies, uh, so the way we use this, this, this idea of jobs to be done is we say that people don't really care about products and services as ends in and of themselves. Um, so you and I are just going about our lives, living our lives and, it's not like we're, we're actively looking for a product or a service or a solution to come, come into our lives. So we live our lives and as we're doing that, stuff just happens to us, right? Like problems arise, goals arise that we want to achieve, big ones and small ones, or jobs that we want to get done. And when those jobs arise, we look around for the best product or service to hire, right? So we use jobs as a kind of a metaphor and say that we hire the best product and service to solve those jobs that pop up in our lives. And um, the reason it's so useful is because it focuses you in on the causal mechanism that drives you to pull something into your life. Um, it's, it, you know, a lot of companies um, for reasons we can get into as they become large and successful, they start to think and act as if their very essence is the products they sell. And they even define themselves in terms of those products. So they say, we, we're a car company, we're competing in the car business, or we're an insurance company, we're competing in the insurance business. Those are solutions, right, to jobs to be done that people have. Um, and it's the job that causes you to buy a car or an insurance product or any other type of product. And so it forces you to reframe why you exist uh, in terms that are connected to the causality underlying why people are buying your products in the first place. That's why it's so, so powerful as an idea. It's like a shift in a frame of reference away from a kind of self-centered business model, customer, uh, um, product-centric point of view to the point of view of the customer and their job to be done, which is what ultimately is driving uh, behavior. Yeah. And, 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 you know, one of the most famous sort of examples is kind of, do people buy a quarter inch hole or do they buy the drill bit? And I would argue that they actually bill by the, I want to hang a shelf on the wall, right? Like that's what, that's the pain point. Like I want to get this shelf on the wall. 
It's not you go to you know your hard local hardware store and you buy a drill and you just sit it on your shelf. Like there's a reason you're buying the drill, right? Yeah, I, I love that you push that to the next level uh, because you're right. There's a famous quote by a, a marketing professor named Ted Levitt, which is, "People don't want a quarter inch drill; they want a quarter inch hole." Right, and it's supposed to illustrate the idea of a job. But you're actually right. People don't even really want a quarter inch hole. They want to be able That's to right. hang something on their wall. And you could actually push it even further and say, well, I don't want to hang something on my wall. I want to feel a certain way by looking up and seeing a picture of my daughter every day, or I want to feel connected to my family. And, and that's really the core job that led me to buy that quarter inch drill. Even better. I'm going to, I'm going to borrow that from you because I stop at the shelf. Now I'm going to add the picture because as soon as you started saying that, I was like, he's so right. I know exactly what he's going to say. And, and that's what you did. And so if you look at, so now I'm going to put it in application since you used car and I, and I often get asked this and I'd love your opinion on it is if you think about a car company and then you think about Uber, Uber pulled out one job to be done, which is I don't have my car or I don't own a car and I need to get from point A to point B. And maybe I don't want to catch a taxi, you know? And so Mm -hmm. they didn't want to go build their own car company and build their own cars. Like that's not what they wanted to do. They wanted to solve a very specific job, right? A traveler who, you know, doesn't want to rent a car. Like I'm just going to pick me. Why would I pick, you know, an Uber for that job to be done over a, you know, taxi? Well, then it landed itself on the experience I have with that particular job solution versus the taxi. Am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah, I, I think you're thinking about it perfectly. And, and I'll, I'll build on it and, and reference that definition of a job, which is it's the, the problem or goal you're trying to achieve in, or the progress you're trying to make in a particular circumstance, right? So, um, you know, the... Um, understanding the job that someone's trying to get done in a particular circumstance, it, it brings incredible clarity to why things are happening in the market, who your real competition is, um, and, uh, and a bunch of other strategic questions. And in the example you just gave, right, uh, the job is I need to get from point A to point B in the circumstance when I'm, you know, in a, in a city, I might be traveling, um, I, I don't know my way around, uh, you know, I, I don't know exactly the best route to take to get there. Um, that's a different circumstance than when you're at home, right? Um, and you don't, you don't usually, uh, well, you, you don't necessarily hire an Uber every time you want to go to the grocery store or run an errand at home, right? Um, and so it's a different circumstance, same job to be done, different solution. But you, yeah, but it, you, you, yeah I'm sorry, go no, ahead. I, no, I was going to, I was going to say that that, that slight distinction you just made is huge, right? Because it isn't that only when you're traveling, do you have that particular job to be done? There may be when you're home, for example, you want to go out, it's a birthday party and you don't want to drink and drive. So that is when I'm home and I have my car, it's a specific particular circumstance as you just, you know, framed that up. Right. And I had a need you know, outside of the norm of me using Uber, but because of my familiarity with solving that particular job, I can also solve it at home. Yeah, that's that's a great example. And, and it, uh, I'll just make one other point, which is uh, it, it gets back to what's the difference between different, you know, schools of thought on jobs to be done that are floating out there in the world. And uh, I'd say when you're applying jobs, uh, I think about it first and foremost as a language, right? So jobs to be done as a language that you 
use to guide the questions you're going to ask about customers to get the right kinds of insights at the right level of detail. And some of the vocabulary within that language uh, are things like the jobs to be done or the circumstances. And um, uh, you're highlighting the importance of circumstance uh, as, as a key you know, element of that vocabulary. And I think they're the languages for jobs to be done, they're kind of like different dialects <laughs> and the different people emphasize different terms for similar concepts. Well, you know, that, that leads me to this customer lens of jobs, right? Because as a product led company, it's like my shiny object. It's the best shiny object that you can buy. It has these speeds and feeds. You know, if you think technology kind of hardware, if you think cars is sort of miles per gallon, you know, all of those. And we now have seen that leading with the product specifications as the job was just, I want a car and, and kind of stopping there to now really, uh, putting the customer and kind of working backwards from the job that they want to be done, where I'm just going to, you know, staying on the car as a, as a you yeah. know, metaphor for this conversation that even car commercials are not, you don't hear them talk necessarily about the drivetrain and the horsepower and the, oh, that, you know, that's kind of the last little, you know, shot in the commercial and it's text, but they're talking about the family, the experience that we're going to go hiking. We're going to go dirt biking. We're going to go on a road trip, right? That's those, um, particular circumstances. And so now I'm going to guess uh, that this, you know, moving towards this customer centricity um, and this jobs concept has gotten you to your new book, The Secret Lives of Customers, which by the way, I love the title. So good on you on that one. Um, but but sort of maybe you can unpack how you got from competing against luck, right, and jobs to the secret lives of, of customers. Uh Definitely. And, um, you know, Clay Christensen once told me that uh, the the purpose of a title is to get somebody to pick your book up and look at it and, you know, just give it give it a little just go a little bit further in the process. And I, I love the title Growth IQ. I think I think that is an awesome title. And I think it's an awesome book, by the way. Um, I was I was looking back at it again uh, in advance of this conversation, having read it a while back. And uh, all of the growth paths, right, are very connected to this idea of jobs to be done, right? Because uh, you, you can explore almost any of those by uh, applying this jobs lens. So I think, I think it's very, very related. Uh, but to your question, how I got to this new book. So, um, you know, we wrote Competing Against Luck back in 2016. Uh, and and um, uh, Clay, you know, Clay wanted to write a book about the idea of jobs, the concept, and and um, you know, he's an he's an academic. He didn't want it to feel at all like a how-to book, right? He wanted it to feel like a big idea book because um, that that's kind of his uh, that was his focus. Um, but and we 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 get a lot of um, inquiries in my firm Insight about how you could apply some of those ideas, and we've developed a lot of those methods, and I've been involved in uh, developing a lot of those methods over the years. And um, I wanted to take the time to codify kind of what I thought people needed to know about how to do it, right? And um, uh, so that was one that was one impetus for that, and. Uh, the other, uh, you know, it's a little bit of an unorthodox format. Um, I don't, I don't know if I've talked to you too much about it, but uh, it's not a, um, it, it's actually a fictional story. So I was inspired by the format of uh, the books of Patrick Lencioni uh, in like the Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which I read and loved. 
uh, many years ago. And the format is there's a, a fictional story which takes up about 80, 85% of the book. And then at the end, and, and through the story, he illustrates the concepts and teaches what he wants to teach and then steps out of it right at the end um, to uh, uh, add a short nonfiction piece to explain the concepts directly. And that was the format I took in my book. Um, it's, uh, it's actually a fictional detective mystery story, perhaps the, um, the first in the history of business books. I don't know if that's exactly true. I'm just asserting that without any evidence, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, but, um, you know, I, I, and, and, and the inspiration for that was, you know, customers are often a mystery, right. To, to people and organizations that serve them or want to serve them. And that's in spite of all of the data that's out there and, you know, all the very sophisticated tools for analyzing data, people and organizations still struggle to understand who are their customers really? Why do they do what they do? What do they really want? You know, how do we gain them? How do we keep them? How do we get them back if we lose them? And so the book is about how anybody can learn to solve the mystery of customer behavior by learning to think like what I call a market detective. And um, uh, I've always thought, you know, having done you know, probably thousands of hours of primary customer research in my career, that there was this parallel between that work and a detective work, right? Where you, you go out and you, you know, you, you try to gather clues and you interview people and you try to piece together a puzzle and see patterns and ultimately come up with an answer to what's going on that can lead you to then create something to, to make people's lives better. So I played on that that parallel and um and wrote a a fictional mystery story well you know i think that it's great to have some fun with learning i'm a visual listen learner like stories really have to capture me the drier the story the harder it is right. for me to to sort of understand um Likewise, and yeah. yeah and and so you know as you were writing this um who was your target reader like who were you writing it for you know, who, if you were to say, which I know this was a question because we share, we share an agent. So right. you know, what, what was the, who is the, who is the audience for it? Uh, so this is a terrible answer, but it's very broad, right? And, and um, so I, <laughs> let, let, let me, let me make a very broad answer and then I'll make it more specific. So I, I believe that everybody in the working world has customers, right? And, and, and that, that's true for the obvious people and by a customer, I mean a person or an organization whose problems you want to understand, whose goals you want to understand so that you can help them solve those problems or achieve those goals. That's what I mean by a customer. And that's true for the obvious people in an organization like salespeople, um, you know, people developing products or doing innovation or marketing or leaders like they clearly um, have external customers they want to understand and need to be very attuned to. But then everyone else in an organization does too, right? If you have a boss, your boss is in some ways your customer. If you have employees or a team that you manage, those people are your customers, right? That you have to understand and help get their jobs done. You know, people working in functions like HR or finance, have customers, right? If I'm in HR, all of the employees of my company are in some ways my customers, as are the different leaders and departments and even potentially people outside the company that we want to attract into working in our company. And so there's this kind of universal, 
problem people have is, is, you know, I, it's part of my role to help my customer solve problems. And there isn't a kind of standard way that's widely adopted. That's easy for anybody to learn to go about having conversations in particular with those customers that elicit you that are honest, you know, authentic, mutually satisfying and that elicit useful insights you can use to, to help them. So that's kind of the broadest framing. Now within that, you know, I think there are um, audiences that uh, could benefit from some of the methods, um, you know, whether it's marketing or innovation or, or salespeople or leaders, but I really was trying to establish a, what, what I call um, uh, a language, a method and a mindset that anybody can learn to uh, more effectively understand their customers. Yeah, and I, and I think that that therein lies sort of the the aha for me, right? It's I think many executives, at least that I you know I get the opportunity to talk to, and and it could just be business unit leaders and individual contributors, but they feel like they have a handle on who their customer is, what their customer wants. And, you know, walking in the shoes of that customer, I'm doing air quotes since you can't see us, right? But walking <laughs> in the shoes of their customers, um, that that secret life of the customer and understanding what is it really like? Are we making it easy? Is it enjoyable? Is Do our products and services, you know, solve these particular circumstance, potential jobs that have to be done? Are we helping them make progress in their life, in their business life, whatever it is? And I, I think many get trapped in this um, crisis of prioritization, right? profit, purpose, customer, product, you know, and it's all of these different things pulling at them at the same time and something has to give. And when the customer gives, you know, then I think that's a bad decision to make for all kinds of reasons. But how can you, how do you sort of advise customers, you know, clients, I should say, in that crisis of prioritization, right? If the multiple things that are pulling them, shareholders, stakeholders, they, if they're publicly traded, they're bored, their employees, et cetera, what's the, what's the decision point to get them to understand that customers really should be at the center? Uh, so that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> um, everybody in the organization, but particularly leaders and, and people that, um, uh, have a responsibility for guiding the organization should be having regular conversations with customers. Uh, I think you're right. It, it's, it's easy to get in a mindset of, yeah, we kind of know what we're doing. We've run this play for a while. It's been very successful. Of course, we understand our customers. We just need to keep executing kind of that same play. Um, but I, I think you would agree that, I mean, customers are just endlessly surprising. They're changing all the time. And um, there's nothing like just going and talking to them directly, right? I mean, there's there are dozens of ways you can get insights about customers, but I call a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a customer the atomic unit of customer research methods, right? Like that's the like like that's the sort of foundational um, uh, interaction that uh, gets you, I think, by far the most bang for your buck. And I think that um, encouraging leaders to have those direct conversations on a regular basis, even on a weekly basis, is is probably uh, one of the most important ways to get 
them pushing the organization to be customer centric because you're always surprised, right? Under, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this. You're you're somebody who is a who has deep deep expertise in sales far more than I do, uh, as well as many other topics. And um, it, you know, you you uh, uh, when you kind of listen openly and not with a bias or preconceptions, you always learn surprising and useful things in conversations like that. I'm always surprised that, and I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and I'm surprised that more don't do it. And, and I, you know, I, I hear a couple of things when I say, you know, executives, customers will ask me or just, you know, businesses randomly will ask me, what do you think we should be focused on? Where do you think we have an opportunity for growth? What is it that we're not doing well, we should be doing differently or better. And I used to actually just immediately answer. And I think I'd done a disservice to so many customers by just, and clients, by just answering. Now I actually flip it on its head and I say, I don't know, what are your customers saying? And I'm either going to get one of two things, right? I'm going to get this flurry of answers. Well, we've just done, and this is all the things we've heard. And now we're in this crisis of prioritization. Which ones do we do first? What are we going to have the biggest bang? What's short-term, medium, long-term, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a very different conversation. And then sometimes I hear, I don't know. You know, but I had this one conversation with a client a couple months ago, and this is what they said. It's like, okay, so you know right away how serious they are about understanding what that is by their willingness and ability to ask the questions. Sometimes it's because, well, I guess let me let me push that back to you. Why do you think that so many executives, um, leaders, people, individual contributors are afraid to ask customers questions? Uh, well, there's probably several reasons, but I think one is they they don't know how, right? And and um, and that uh, and it, and it seems kind of intimidating, right? So so uh, we we do uh, workshops often to to teach people how to uh, have conversations with customers and you know follow a whole innovation process around that. And one of the first things we always do is um, well, and this was in a in a pre-pandemic era, but we would we would divide groups into teams and we would have them go out to a mall or someplace nearby and find a stranger. And they would have to interview that person to understand some, you know, roughly bounded problem. Like, you know, why did you buy your last car, for example? And they'd have to um, approach them, you know, (laughs) figure out how to, you know, not scare them away, get them to, to open up and we wouldn't give them any direction whatsoever, except, you know, go find the person, find out why they bought their last car. And um, it's always awkward in the beginning. Uh, and, and then of course they come back and they report and then we give them tools to go do that and we have them practice it again. But they always feel very awkward uh, at first because they're not sure how to approach them. They're not sure what to ask. They're not sure whether, um, uh, uh, you know, connecting to a stranger like that uh, has any probability of turning out well. <laughs> and, uh, um, and but they're always surprised. Like it's amazing. They come back and they're so excited about it because once they kind of get through the first, um, you know, few minutes, they realize, you know, like people are always willing to talk to you if you're coming at them in an authentic, you know, genuinely interested, sincere way. And you really care about what they have to say, but I think I think that's the biggest reason is just it's unfamiliar, and then they don't necessarily have the right um, knowledge to do that. And that's that's actually precisely what my book is about. And you know, I say you need to learn 
you know, uh, and I, you know, again, I, I use this detective metaphor throughout where I say you're trying to learn to be a market detective. To do that, you need to learn a language and you need to learn a method and a mindset. Right. And so the language is the language of jobs to be done in a particular dialect of it that I recommend. A method is then how you use that language to go have a conversation with somebody that gets at the right insights. And then, you know, there's a set of mindsets that maximize your chances of doing that as well. And I think there's a couple things you said in there that I often find myself saying, and I'd love to float this by you because you're far more of an expert on jobs to be done than I am. Um, but if you reach out to customers to have these conversations, to just blanket ask, what do you need for us to do? That's like, what do you want, Henry Ford? We want faster horses, not a car. I can't even imagine what that is. But if you start to ask questions, kind of this master asker, which is really a term I learned from Mark Victor Hansen, who I, whom I had on my podcast, who wrote the book Chicken Soup for the Soul, um, and has also wrote the book Ask, uh, to become this master asker of questions, um, is that you have to be better like that detective, right? Asking better questions, but to just say, what do you want is not a great question. It's not going to get to the heart of the jobs to be done. And so... You know, then you have Steve Jobs, you know, famous quote on the other side. If you, I don't ask customers, we don't do it. They don't know what they want. So you've got this too extreme, right? Um, and you don't need to be Steve Jobs. It's can you be a better um, asker of questions in a way that uncovers that job to be done? And then you can align that to do we have a product or service that can solve it? And if we don't, should we? Should we buy something? Should we create something? Right. And so uncovering that, I think is you're looking for that job they're trying to get done without just point blank, blank asking them, what do you want? Because sometimes they don't know. Fair? I, I, I think that's perfectly said. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and, and the way that um, I think about it is, uh, and there's, there, there's a fair number of, of quips in the book where in, in the dialogue, dialogue that people have. And one of them is this observation that the questions you ask are not the questions you're seeking to answer. Right? So, so I, I, and I actually think making that um, distinction um, when you're going into these conversations is really helpful because the, the questions you're trying to answer are things like, what are the customer's jobs to be done? You know, what are the social, functional and emotional jobs to be done they have in a given circumstance? And then what are the dimensions that define the circumstance that they're in? Um, what, uh, you know, what, what are they doing today to get those jobs done? what works, what doesn't work, um, you know, what, what are the health wanted signs uh, for that, that, that suggests there could be um, better solutions. Those are the, that's the information you're looking for, right? Those are the questions that you want to answer because when you know those things, you can then plug those into your solution generation engine, uh, right? Like those are the right details you want to know. Now, of course you can't directly ask really any of those questions because they're, they're not going to know where the job to be done is. So, so, so I think about um, those conversations as you're, you're looking as a series of prompts, right, which is a little bit broader than a question, but a prompt where you, you, you ask them a question or you ask them to describe something to you. And then you, wanna, you want those to be engineered in a way that it elicits the information you're looking for but you have that in your head, right? So then you can see that as they're kind of wandering around and it's, it's actually okay if they ramble around. In fact, a lot of times the, the best insights in a conversation like that come 
from unexpected directions the conversations take. And if you make this distinction between the information you're looking for and how you get it, then you're much more comfortable letting those conversations ramble around because you're still, you've got that structure in your, in your mind. That makes sense. That's really great advice. Uh, and thank you for that. This has been, <clears throat> excuse me, such an, a fantastic conversation. One I've wanted to have for so long. So I, I just so appreciate you uh, spending time with us today, David on the what's next podcast, talking about uh, com both competing against luck and your new book that's coming out, The Secret Lives of Customers. But before we go, you know, I do want to just send my condolences. I know Clay passed away a little more than a year ago, and I know he was a dear friend and colleague of yours. So, you know, I, I reached out when it happened, but, you know, we've talked so much about him here today. It made reminded me to publicly say it to you uh, during this interview. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, it was a great, great loss for the world. And uh, he was a great, great human being. So with that, I just want to say thank you. How can people keep in touch with you, David? What what are you uh, up to in the short term between now and May 4th when your book uh, launches? Uh, so we're there's going to be a, a site for the book that'll be it should be up and running within a couple of days. And the website's www.marketdetective.com. And uh, that'll be a place where uh, you know you can learn more about the ideas. We're going to um, put a bunch of supporting resources on there about jobs to be done and all of these topics. And so that's a good place for uh, anyone who might be interested to learn more. All right. Well, thank you so much, David. It's been a pleasure. Uh, likewise. Thanks so much, Tiffany. What a fantastic conversation. I have been so excited to have David on the show for so long, and I'm glad we finally made it happen especially as we're running up to the time he's going to launch his new book, The Secret Lives of Customers. I hope you found that discussion enlightening around jobs to be done. It's such a great framework I continue to share with people as a way to understand what it is from a product and service standpoint that you're selling and what kinds of particular circumstances and challenges, goals or problems customers have that you are trying to solve. So thank you for spending time with us on this episode of the What's Next podcast. Please subscribe, download, share with your friends, leave some feedback, and don't forget to let us know what you think of the show. So thank you again for joining us.